So beginning this evening's talk with a question. What enables us to move towards taking on being a Buddha? What makes us or what makes one a true heir to the Buddha? To begin with, in response to this question, I'll begin with just a a brief review of mindfulness. So, considering for a moment, have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding out that they're not at all like what your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments of them were. Without mindfulness, we're often caught and unaware in our initial perceptions of and our uh, reactions to things because we're so often blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without mindfulness, we could say that our relationship to most all of our experience is like this. Everything we see, everything we hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns our habitual ways of experiencing. And we're not aware of it. What this means is is that we're living at a distance from experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And this can be like a vicious circle that feeds itself, feeding the conditioning. And we become more and more on automatic, more robotic, kind of like our computer. You push the key and out pops what's already in there. Habitual conditioned reactions. Mindful presence is a very powerful way of changing our mind, changing our heart, and thus changing the way that we relate to ourselves, to people, to other people, to things, and to situations in this world. Connecting with an open-hearted, clear awareness is what's needed in all instances. And as the uh, Buddha, the metaphor the Buddha used in relationship to mindfulness, he said, Mindfulness is needed in all instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces. This is what begins and allows the process of release and transformation of our painful, unskillful habits. So you can see why the Buddha called mindfulness the first factor of enlightenment.
And as Annie mentioned a few evenings ago, mindfulness is a refuge, a refuge for the heart, a refuge for the mind. And what affords us our greatest protection throughout the whole of our practice, throughout the whole of our life. And so I'd like to offer you um, a short definition of mindfulness that I think can be helpful. Mindful awareness is about paying a kind of extraordinary attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience, both your inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena. And sometimes this might feel like a magical relationship to things. And by magic I don't mean the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion. The seeming magic of mindfulness is the magic of a connected, interested, open-hearted, mindful presence that takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, and brings us directly into reality. It's not our usual way to be so present in the moment. And so we train the heart, we train the mind to just simply see and know what is. What is this? How is it right here, right now? There's a phrase uh, that the Buddha used, ehipasika. Come and see, ehipasika. This is an invitation from the Buddha to come and see, not to come and believe, but to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great interest, willingness, and courage, which includes a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience. An interest, willingness, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind with humility and without relying on what others say is true through something we may have heard or something we may have read. To come and see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of our relationships too, that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual identifications with our inner and outer experience. This interest, willingness, courage, and humility are the qualities that keep practice alive. From the very beginning of our practice, 
and ongoing through all the years of our practice. With this evening's talk, we'll begin to explore the investigative or the discerning aspect of mindfulness. The aspect of mindfulness that's fueled through the Buddha's invitation, Ehipasika, come and see, which in fact is the second factor of enlightenment, investigation or discrimination of states. So investigation, discrimination of states, both bodily and mental states. This is the activity of mindfulness. It illuminates the object. We see the object of our mindfulness clearly. Investigation has the power to penetrate and illumine things, to light up bodily and mental experience right into their very core showing us both their individual characteristics and their universal essence or ultimate realities. This factor of enlightenment has the potential to dispel darkness. The darkness of not seeing. The darkness of ignoring how it is. Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. And the not seeing, the not knowing of delusion and ignorance. It's like walking into a pitch dark room with a very bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen, is known, and confusion is dispelled. In our practice, Investigation means that we experience directly without the mediation of concept. So, for example, and please note that this can be a metaphor for any physical or mental phenomena. A breath is known. And maybe you see and know it at the level of simply knowing in, simply knowing out, which is still very much based in the world of concept. Investigation without putting on the metaphorical glasses, we could say. Then you put on these glasses and directly know along a short, a deep or a shallow breath. Or you may connect simply and directly with the movement of the breath at the nostrils or in the belly, experiencing the touch sensation in the space between the nostrils and the upper lip, or the rising and falling movement in the belly. So now beginning to move from conceptualizing the breath to direct experience. And then you look through the microscope with the lowest power lens. The whole in-breath is felt and known from beginning to end. 
you feel and know the whole out-breath from its beginning to its end. And maybe much to your surprise, you find that each in-breath and each out-breath is not necessarily the smooth, ongoing experience that you've been used to. Even though it might be quite subtle, you begin to feel and know it very clearly as maybe happening in tiny segments. In, 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 out, out, out. Rather than as a smooth flow. And now as you come closer, getting more intimate with the experience of breath, you begin to see it as just simply happening in its own way without you controlling it. The heart, mind, and body are relaxed and interested in what's occurring, not thinking about it, just simply present, receptive, and interested. As you relax more with interest growing even brighter, the microscope's lens powers up. The idea, the concept of breath maybe falls away. The mind is settled and collected. Potential distractions have little or no attraction. The subtle sensation just below the nostrils or the rising and falling movement in the belly is very clearly felt and known with maybe the predominant experience being a particular flavor of vibration with each movement of the breath. Who's breathing? Breath isn't what you thought it was at least not for the moments that you've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully present with it. Clearly discerning the experience with a deep and complete trust that those moments, that in those moments, a trust that this is just enough. Nothing else needs to be done. The mind, the heart, is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to experience, as the way of things reveals itself. This is our practice. This is our training. I'd like to spend a little bit of time now <clears throat> exploring what we could call our life as a creative process, our life as our practice, with mindfulness and investigation being the root from which stem the very beautiful blossoms of wisdom and creative expression in its myriad manifestations throughout the whole of our life. Practice is very akin 
to creative process, which as we know is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions, and is a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So for instance, whether it be the immediacy and maybe spontaneity of moment-to-moment visceral and mental connection and response in relationship to the moving body, or via receiving what is seen or what is heard without interposing the self. In other words, contacting things directly. We could say that the creative process, or life as a creative process, is in a sense about forgetting what we've previously learned. Meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject or the object, which is actually a necessary step in seeing and knowing more directly and clearly and responding more appropriately. This forgetting stops the mind from knowing in its habitual conditioned ways. At this point, one is confronted with the object itself. And one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart, the mind is open, receptive, appreciative, able to respond to the inner experience, the tone, the shape, the texture, and its changing nature, be it mental or physical with genuine authority and autonomy. What keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One person's response to this was the fear of losing control. I think that for many people, The experience of not knowing, or we experience, many people experience not knowing, as feeling dumb. But really, some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had, in which truth was revealed to me, all had the quality of bearing witness, of just simply being there, or just simply being here with humility and a tremendous and yet relaxed interest, a very open-hearted, connected, mindful, and discerning attention, and no need to make meaning. In our practice and in our life as our practice, until we can suspend the 
need to make meaning. We can't experience direct revelation. We can't experience insight, wisdom. And I know well that it's not so easy to be unarmed, meaning to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identification. Fear sometimes leaps up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind slowly and with great care to see clearly and to let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things themselves. But the way can be difficult as we're faced with our self, our seemingly set, solid self. And it seems that we're overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the center of our attention. Thus it's very difficult to come and see as the Buddha invites us beyond this notion of a self. Engaging in this creative process of our practice with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness is the way towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, and energy, which creates the conditions that allow direct revelation, direct insight into the way of things. I've learned a, a lot from children in this arena. In my early 30s, I taught art in an alternative school for a number of years. The five to eight-year-olds loved painting. And sometimes I would ask them to paint in relationship to a particular theme. But often it was just free expression painting. And one morning as I was walking around looking and commenting on paintings in process and those already finished, one little boy said to me, you always like our paintings. How come? This little boy noticed something and asked the right question. Children sometimes, um, as you may know, have a way of saying things that stop us in our tracks. Yes, I do, I thought. Yes, I do always like their paintings. How come? I don't remember exactly what I said to him. This was a long time ago. But I said something about honesty and expressing from the inside and how could I not feel anything but appreciation? I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions, 
but there wasn't anything to dislike or feel critical critical about because what each child painted was their honest expression at that moment. And that little boy seemed to understand when I said whatever it was. I said something like what I just said, but not quite. He shook his head up and down, and he kind of beamed at me. So, making a bit of a stretch, and regarding this in relationship to our practice. As adults, can we be so unarmed in relationship to what occurs within us? with the attitude of this is what's happening right here, right now. This is what's happening. While at the same time, with honest interest, being mindful and seeing clearly, along with an open-hearted receptivity to the right answers that will inevitably show up, to our perennial questions regarding the way towards being truly happy and at ease in this life. Can we as adults be so unarmed in relationship to what occurs within us? One of the creative endeavors that's been uh, part of my life on and off over the years since I was in my early twenties is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. This work has been a, a deep and powerful direct practice and a metaphor of practice for me, particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are the seven factors of enlightenment. So just to share a little bit of this, um, as I think it may be a useful illustration in the context of our retreat here. In order to create a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of mindful investigation must take place. A head is shape, the neck and shoulders, the face. How to see the whole and then know it, both in its wholeness and in its, in its particulars, so that the seeing and knowing can be transferred through the eyes, mind, heart, and body, and through the hands and fingers into the clay. A, a daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds, as probably thousands of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. 
And so the subject's head and face begin to break down into a series of relational forms. Forms that exist only in relationship to each other. Forms that exist only in spatial relationship to each other in this case. So there's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There are just a series of relationships to be known. And it's a very intimate process. Much more so than if I just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known. But not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity, fixedness, separateness, lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away in moments. What is this nose, this eye, this chin? Any nose, any eye, any chin. Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles, moment after moment after moment. Seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relation to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye, and on and on and on. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers and forming into the clay, little by little by little. And as though magically, a face emerges out of the clay. A face that bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's um, not so easy to render this creative process into words. So I hope that it's been at least somewhat communicated and somewhat helpful for you. And as I've mentioned, and as I'm sure that some of you are aware of, insight practice is itself an art and in many ways very close to the creative process. During one particular time period when I was uh, deeply immersed in the sculpture work, I went to see a movie at the movie theater. And I was quite struck that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the lobby. Each one having all the same equipment. <laughs> 
noses, eyes, mouths, cheeks, chins, foreheads, etc. And yet each person's face being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how all the parts were interrelated. My awareness that evening, jumping back and forth, seeing the diversity in the unity or in the one, and the unification or the one in the diversity. That evening, they weren't separate. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament sutra, which is revered as a treasure of sensual imagery and considered to be the highest teaching of the Buddha in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. There's a short section in this very long sutra that elaborates on my very uh, tiny and very brief little experience. And the sutra says this, The Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable and the immeasurable in the one, the immeasurable, immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow the process of life as it unfolds. And the sutra goes on to say, birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. In very precise and sometimes minute ways or at times through a more spacious, less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation, we come to know the nature of things anything, all things, ordinary things. For a moment we touch into the absolute truth of the relative world and it makes a difference in how we live our life. Mindfulness, investigation and discernment are our guides through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. And as each of you well know, life can be challenging and difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and difficult at times. Certainly not new news to any of you. Along with the way we find that it takes a deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. 
And people sometimes describe their experience at particular points along the path as <clears throat> feeling as though they're <clears throat> a spiritual warrior. I think that many of us, uh, much of the time, view our experience and view our life as a string of blessings or a string of curses. Through our practice, our life as our practice, we learn to not get caught up in the attachment to blessings and the aversion to curses. With mindful presence and clear discernment as the ground of our life, we learn to view and to relate to life as a continual opportunity, a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and our understanding. With all of it affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening. And I think also that for many of us, if we're really truly candid, we may occasionally feel like a spiritual warrior in the process. A few years ago it became clear that I needed to have an old filling removed and a, uh, a crown put on this same molar. So maybe a curse from one point of view. I happen to be severely allergic to a number of local anesthetics. So Novocaine or any of the other local anesthetics used for dental work are not for me. So maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I have a very deep and strong practice. Definitely a great blessing. The uh, appointment with the dentist was quite a challenge. The challenge of continually relaxing and staying open to the experience of the moment. Focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation. Sometimes a very strong, intense sensation and sometimes a more mild sensation. Being present with it from its beginning all the way through to its end. As soon as I would lose my concentration mindfulness and clarity of investigation, clarity of discernment, ignorance immediately moved in. What was merely unpleasant quickly became strong disliking, and the moment then verged on becoming an unbearable moment. And there was a moment when I completely lost the concentrated mindful connection to what was occurring and my body jerked very strongly in reaction to a particular sensation which surprised the dentist and was a wake-up call for me. And it was in moments a great surprise to me to see how easy or to feel and experience how easy it was to be there as long as I was clearly and purely present just with what was happening. Time lost its ordinary parameters 
just like it sometimes does with intensive retreat practice. I wasn't waiting for the end of anything. And in fact, there were surprising moments of feeling like I could stay here forever. And that would be perfectly okay. So what's a curse? What's a blessing? As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessing begins to permeate all corners of our life. Mindfulness and investigation of states grounded in interest and open-hearted, non-judgmental receptivity is our guide through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind, outside of our own heart, or someone else to do it for us. The invitation is ehipasika, come and see. When we connect and see clearly, the next step is right in front of us, just one step at a time. So another story. One autumn morning, um, a number of years ago, I went for a day-long hike with a friend up into the mountains in the Towski Valley here. My hiking buddy is a long-time Dharma practitioner, and uh, we like to hike in silence and usually walk alone, though not far along the trail um, from each other. And often we speak together only during our uh, rest breaks or during lunch. Hiking days like this for me and for my friend are some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world and to our bodily sensations and movement and to the feelings and the various states that come up and come and go through the mind and the heart as we take our time making our way up the trail. And on this particular day, as we were wending our way up the trail of this particular Rocky Mountain landscape, two young people came up behind us moving very fast, actually almost running up the trail. And they each had a small yellow plastic object in their hand, which they were quite intently holding up and out in front of them. And we exchanged uh, cursory hellos, and I asked them as they were kind of running by what the yellow plastic object was. And I was told it was a GPS, as if I would know what that was, which I didn't. <laughs> And they were in such a hurry that there was no opportunity to ask them, what, what's a GPS? What is that? So my friend that I was hiking with knew a little bit about it and said that this was an instrument that tells you where you are. 
And as soon as she said this, we both looked at each other with a kind of amazement, and we began to laugh. And we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. This experience somehow really tickling our funny bone. That particular day, where my friend and I were, was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning system seemed so silly at that point and in that setting. And this is a poem that speaks to this in its own way called Lost by David Wagoner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying here. No two trees are the same to Raven. No two branches are the same to Wren. If what a tree, a bush does, is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, ehi pasika, come and see, come and see for yourself. The Buddha with his great clarity and compassion spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of the enlightenment factor of the investigation of states. He said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and unbeneficial states. Beneficial states such as loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, as well as to the so-called hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, and the doubting mind. He said it's essential that we give this wise and careful attention to states of suffering, to the cause of suffering itself, and to the end of suffering. And again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual characteristics of both beneficial or wholesome states and what he called unbeneficial or unwholesome states. The Buddha again and again directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body and mind. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the impermanence, the impermanent nature, the selfless, empty nature of all mental and bodily experiences. 
This is the primary nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of investigation. And investigation is primarily what counters delusion, what counters ignorance. The Buddha also tells us that we should ask appropriate questions and that it's helpful to reflect on the very real possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who have understanding and it's suggested that we don't spend too much time with people who don't have understanding. The Buddha spoke in a beautiful way about internal purification of the heart and mind as being, and these are his words, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with the clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support. And that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with a purified base, meaning a mind, a heart, that's cleansed through the moral integrity of sila, and the purification of mind, the purification of heart, that the development of concentration, samadhi, facilitates. Investigation is also nurtured by balancing our faculties of faith energy, mindfulness, concentration, and understanding. Clear discrimination of bodily and mental states is a requisite for awakening, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. And so in this light, the particular factor of investigation is spoken of as the wisdom factor. Japanese philosopher and teacher Yanagi, who wrote the book called The Way of Tea, speaks about this in a lucid and succinct way. He says, they saw. Before all else, they saw. They were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. The difference between the person with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I, and one who lives and sees and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states, is that within the narrowness of the mind steeped in me, mine, and I, there's a strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and fears that arise, which is a very painful place to live one's life from. When the mind, the heart, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't very often caught or thrown off or ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see what is. We know it beyond the seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by hopes and fears 
in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come. We let them go. Our practice affords us the potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often. The direct investigation and discrimination of states is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And as I'm sure you well know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way out of tension to think our way out of stress and confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into truly letting go. We can't think our way to freedom. Awakening is beyond or beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple. It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind, the heart. And he goes on to say, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child not the toy. With investigation we move out of the dark and come into the light, the light of wisdom. In reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge was born, wisdom was born, understanding was born, light was born. As awakening beings, we're moving toward our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being, a description that Sada Upandita uses for one who is awake, a real human being. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer to this world. I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poetic teaching from the Buddha. <clears throat> it's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, 
Let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus, thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in her and him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.